Well, you may be seated. Welcome to City Life Church. I'm excited to get into uh, this series that we've been in tonight called Conversations. But before I do that, I want to I give a shout out to our Pastor Justin White on his birthday. <clears throat> he was talking about me wearing a lot of hats, but this man wears a lot of hats at City Life Church. In fact, he's wearing one right now. He is service coordinating. Always on Saturday, running around trying to make sure the logistics, the online stuff is going great. And he serves his butt off in this church. And so we say thank you, Pastor Justin, not only for what you do, for us um, at the church, but how you love your family, how you love your wife, your son, how you're a friend to us. It is inspiring. It's encouraging. So Pastor Justin, Juice, <laughs> Professor, if you've been keeping up with One Table, we love you. Happy birthday. Also, I want to say, give a shout out to Jordan Kimball, my friend, back from deployment after being away for some months, finally got his tail back here. So we're excited to see you, man. And uh, I know your wife is too. <laughs> so, well, like I said, I am excited tonight to jump into this conversations series that we've been in. We've been uh, kind of looking through scripture at different conversations that people have had with God. And so tonight, I want to talk about a conversation that each of us will have. A conversation that each of us will have with God in the future at the end of our lives. Luke chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your Bible on your phone or your iPad, you can go ahead and swipe or scroll there. If you've got your physical Bible, go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 12, verse 42. We're going to be reading the whole story here, 42 through 48. So this is Jesus telling a story, and he says, Who are the faithful and wise managers whom the master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their food at the proper time? Happy are the servants whom the master finds fulfilling their responsibilities when he comes. I assure you that the master will put them in charge of all of his possessions, but suppose that these servants should say to themselves, my master is taking his time about coming. And suppose they began to beat the servants, both men and women, and to eat, drink, and get drunk. The master of those servants would come on a day when they weren't expecting him, at a time they couldn't predict. And the master will cut them into pieces, it says, and assign a place with the unfaithful, that servant who knew his master's will but didn't prepare for it or act on it will be beaten severely. The one who didn't know the master's will but who did things deserving punishment will be beaten only a little. Much will be demanded from everyone who has been given much. And from one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. This story that Jesus tells, it's kind of a heavy story, right? Kind of a, a, a serious tone, but it's a, a, passage, a, a parable, uh, which is just a fancy word of saying, right? It's this allegorical story. It's a, a, a way that Jesus is trying to prove or make a point uh, by using metaphor or allegory. And he was using language that would have been common to his audience, right? S language that would have been familiar to them. And so for us, sometimes we have a hard time with parables, right? 
Because we don't understand, like with this one, fully in our cultural context, this dynamic, this relationship between master and manager, between a master and servants, that's kind of a distant concept for us. And so I thought maybe at the beginning of the sermon, I could put it into a more familiar context for you. So who here has ever been put in charge of something by someone of authority? To make it really simple, think about when you were a kid. I know for some of you it's going to take a minute. It's all right. You can close your eyes if you need to. Get mindful. But just think back as far as you can to when you were a kid and, and think back to a moment when your mom or your dad, your parents, they asked you to, uh, to take care of something while they were at work. Maybe they asked you to clean your room or to do the dishes, or, or maybe they asked you, you know what, I'm going to make that meatloaf tonight that you like, so can you just pull, remember to pull the ground beef out the freezer before I get home so that I can make it? And now remember the second your mom or your dad left plopping on the couch and turning on the TV to whatever your favorite show was. I heard there were 90 kids in here, right? Total Request Live for me or Boy Meets World, right? Think back to when you're sitting on the couch watching TV and, and just remember the feeling you felt when you saw those headlights just kind of pass over the window. And you heard the breaking of the gravel in the driveway of your parents' car, the hum of their engine. You heard the jingling of their keys and remember the feeling you felt in that moment when you realized, shoot, might not have said that. I forgot to clean my room. I forgot to do the dishes. The worst is I forgot to pull the meat out the freezer. Because ain't no recovery from that, right? Ain't no faking, thawing meat, right? Y'all remember, some of y'all are getting itchy uh, hands and getting sweaty just thinking about it, anxious thinking about it, because you remember the dread of, wow, there is nothing I can do now. It's too late. It's done. I didn't do what I was supposed to do, and, and guess what? Now I'm dead. <laughs> there will be consequences for this. That is the feeling that Jesus was trying to generate in his disciples. And I think it's especially important for us to hear this message today because I think that there's an aspect of our responsibility, an aspect of our, our stewardship as Christians which we've forgotten or neglected. Tonight I want to talk about the responsibility that we have to care for creation. I believe that part of our conversation with God on the final day of judgment will include a conversation about how we have taken care of his house, how we have stewarded this earth. And I know that there's going to be people who object and say, well, I thought, right, that when Jesus comes, the, the world is just going to burn up and we're going to get a new one, right? Like this world is just going to be thrown in the trash can and so we don't have to worry about it. And there's good reason. For people to say that, right, 2 Peter 3.10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Kind of sounds like your mom or dad coming home from work early, right? In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, what I just read to you is, uh, I read the verse out of the New King James Version. The King James Version sounds very similar, but most every other translation says this last line like this. The earth and its works will not be burned up. It'll be exposed, discovered, laid bare found out. Actually, that word that is translated in the New King James as burnt up is the same Greek word for find that Jesus uses when he says, seek and you will find, right? What is this saying? It's saying on that day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to find us out. He's going to look at the earth and all of our works in it, and it's all going to be exposed. And so I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of you know, eschatology tonight, post-millennial, pre-millennial, all that stuff. I think it's legitimate for you to interpret the text that, that you know, maybe we are going to get a shiny new earth and the old one is going to pass away completely and nothing of that old world will transfer into the new one. But, but I don't think you can argue that we won't still be held accountable for how we treated that old earth when it was in our care. It's still our responsibility. In fact, the very first conversation, in the very first conversation that God has with humankind, he makes it very clear to us. Genesis 1, chapter 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image to resemble us, so that they may take care of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. Verse 27, it says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master or subdue it. Take charge and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Many people for so many generations have misinterpreted this passage and misused this verse to say, well, we have dominion. Or what they really mean is we can take domination, right? We could do whatever we want because God's given it to us. But Speaking of conversations, right, at City Life Church, we say, right, the Bible speaks to itself. And you got to make sure that when you read something in Scripture, you read all of Scripture and see how it's speaking to the rest. Because this is what the Bible tells us in Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants too. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it. Job 41, 11, God says of himself, Everything under heaven is mine. All of Scripture is reminding us constantly of our place on this planet. Though God has given us the authority to master the earth, we are not its masters. We're merely its managers. The earth ultimately belongs to him. And unfortunately, this truth has been lost in translation. Rather than proceeding with care for creation as its managers, we've proceeded with arrogance as its masters. So tonight, I want to look at three indicators of bad management because none of us want to be the one holding frozen meat when God comes, right? When Jesus returns, we want to be able to say that we managed well. And so I want to look at what bad management looks like. And the first point I want to make tonight is that bad managers overconsume. 
looking at the story that Jesus tells. When the master returns to the manager that he put in charge of his house, the managers, what he finds out is that when he was gone, they ate, they drank, and they got drunk. Remember this language, it's poetic. It's, it's a parable, right? And so what it's saying is that these managers, they weren't just eating and drinking. They were over-consuming what was theirs to eat and drink. He was talking about overconsumption. The managers, they abused and misused the master's resources. So when we talk about management and our responsibility to manage the earth around us, maybe we can ask the question, well, how are we doing with that? <laughs> One statistic says it like this, Americans constitute 5% of the world's population and yet consume five times as much energy, 24% of the world's energy. A newborn in the United States requires more than twice as much grain and 10 as much oil as a child born in Brazil or Indonesia and produces far more pollution. 20% of the world's population, representing the most developed countries, which includes us, have contributed to more than 75%. <laughs> so less than a quarter have produced three quarters of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. I would say, judging from these statistics, that we have a problem with overconsumption. But this is not a new problem. This is not a unique American problem. This is a human problem that God anticipates from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2, right after God uh, has that original conversation with Adam and Eve, this is what it says. Genesis 2 verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. How many of you have heard that verse before and you just thought, well, those two things are synonyms? Right? I've heard that a million times. All of us who have started a Bible plan in January and read through Genesis 1,200 times, right, and none of the rest of the Bible, we've read this verse many times. And I know for me, when I've read that verse, I've always just thought, oh, yeah, farm and take care of. Same thing, right? Or to till and to keep or work and watch over, serve and preserve. I've always just thought that these things were synonyms, but in actuality, these things are parameters, they're poles that God lays around from the very beginning. He lays them around our consumption. To farm or to till is the Hebrew word abad, which is to work for your own benefit or for the benefit of others. It's, it's the part of the parameter, the lower limit, where God says you can consume, right? Like consumption is not bad. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he said eat, Right? And so he does. He says, when he says farm, till, work, what he's saying is consume. But then he says, take care of, keep, watch. It's the word shamar in the Hebrew, which means to preserve or protect. This part of the parameter, it gives us upper limits to how we should consume. And it is human nature, right? We get excited about the lower limit. We say, oh, God said we can eat. <laughs> we, we hear, yeah, go ahead and farm. Go ahead and till. Go ahead and consume. But we miss, but keep. 
but watch, but preserve, but make sure that there's enough for future generations, but make sure that there's enough for people on the margins. That's our problem. There's this tension between those two limits, the lower limit of consume and the upper limit of, yeah, but take care, be careful. And as long as we have appetites, there will always be a tension between attention between these two poles, right? It's the same reason why people say, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, right? Because why? Because when you're hungry, your appetite will have you putting stuff in your cart without taking care of your bank account, <laughs> right? Without watching your wallet, without preserving the budget, right? That's what our appetites do. They say, yeah, get in there, eat. That we forget about the parameters, right? The limits that we really do have in this world. If you don't believe me, it goes on to say, Genesis chapter 2, uh, after verse 15, where God sets these, or the passage sets these parameters, right? Uh, to till and to keep. It bears it out. In 16 through 17, the Lord commanded the human, eat your fill from all the garden's trees, right? That's him saying consume, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even from the very beginning, even before the fall, there were parameters. There were boundaries around consumption. If you know how the story plays out, you know that Adam and Eve did not do very well with those parameters, right? They sure did not get keep their grubby hands off of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But as Christians, as the new managers of the garden, we should be getting it right. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And we know this part, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Our problem is we hear that last verse and we put it on mugs and posters and stuff, keychains. <laughs> and we, we use it to say, I can do everything I put my mind to through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> I can do everything I want to do. I can have anything I want through Christ who strengthens me, but we forget the context is that Paul is talking about being in every situation, being in want and having more than you need. And he says, you know what? Because of Christ, because of Jesus, I know how to do both. I know how to be content when I'm hungry, and I know how to be content when I'm full. And I think our problem as Christians in America is that we don't know how to be content when we're full. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this about grace. It says, my grace, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't know about you, but I don't love that word sufficient. I'm in school right now. I was talking to Amy Kimmel about this. We love going to school. You want to know why? Because they give you a pat on the back. <laughs> they give you grades. Young people, I promise you, you will miss grades when you get older. Because nobody is walking around giving you stickers and telling you how awesome you're doing in life. Unless you go back to school. You got to pay a lot of money for it, right? And so, right, I love getting the feedback from professors. Great, awesome, A+. Plus. What wouldn't be great is if I got feedback from a professor that said, the assignment was eight pages, you wrote eight pages, sufficient. Enough, <laughs> right? Like, we don't like to hear enough. 
But the sense of sufficiency, hear me, that grace gives us is that it satisfies us. It satisfies our appetite. Contrary to popular belief, God does not envision our Christian life here on earth to be one of material indulgence, but instead a life of spiritual and material contentment. And not just when we're in need, but even when we have more than enough. If grace is at work in your life, then restraint should be one of the defining characteristics of how you live. When I hear those statistics about how much we in America overconsume, it makes me question when people say we are a Christian country. Because I'm like, if we were, we would be content. We would know when to stop. So here's the question, because I know I have practical people in the room tonight. For each of these points, I'm going to give you three practical things that you can do. The question I want you to ask yourself when you leave here tonight is just simply this, can I reduce? Can I reduce? Knowing that our cultural context encourages us to overconsume, ask yourself the question, can I reduce? When you go home tonight and you tuck your kids into bed, walk around your house, look at your stuff, and ask yourself the question, if I have less than what I do now, would it cause my faith to suffer? Or maybe you need to ask the question, is my faith suffering now because I have more than I need? Because I feel like my contentment is in my own hands. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is my relationship with stuff? And then that question will reveal to us what our relationship with the master looks like. Okay, point number two. Bad managers exploit and abuse. Bad managers exploit and abuse. It says in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus is giving this uh, story uh, about the master coming home to his managers, it says that not only did he find them drunk, but he found that they had beaten the servants. I want to say this, that overconsumption is not a victimless sin. The problem with overconsumption is that it does not merely exploit the resources the master entrusts to us, but it exploits the people dependent on those resources. When I was uh, in high school, I always took this missions trip to Mexicali, Mexico. And uh, I went three years in a row, and we went with this guy named Danny at our church who actually grew up there. And so we partnered uh, with, with his church. They did outreach into some of the poorest neighborhoods in that community. But, and it was, it was all, always something I looked forward to, right? But one of the things I looked forward to, the benefit of going to Mexicali with Danny since he grew up there is he knew the best spots to eat. And so there was this taco restaurant named Tacos Yubis. I don't know how to spell it. Don't know if it still exists. <laughs> but, uh, but it was this spot called Tacos Yubis, and I, I had two revelations. It's always good to go outside of the country and, and see cultures other than your own because then you realize the things that are normal aren't normal everywhere, <laughs> right? And so one of the revelations I had was that, man, taco menus in Mexico are very different than taco menus in America, right? It don't look like Taco Bell up in here. <laughs> there were hardly any tacos on the menu. There were no tacos on the menu with cheese or sour cream, right, loaded up with all that Dorito dust <laughs> that we get from Taco Bell, right? I actually learned the reason why quesadillas are called quesadillas is because that's the only thing they put cheese on, right? I'm like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. <laughs> but that was my first revelation is, okay, tacos are different here, and they slap, even though there was no cheese or sour cream on them. 
But the second point, the second revelation I had was when we were getting ready to get in line and order, the Danny was like kind of guiding us through the process, and he was explaining, hey, when you get up there, they're going to give you your soda in a glass bottle. But don't throw it away. Uh, be careful not to lose it or take it with you because they're going to take it back. They're going to reuse it. They'll wash it out, reuse it for another day. And if you take it, if you lose it, if you break it, then it's going to cost them money. And so we're like, okay, got it. Cool. No big deal. Well, we get our delicious tacos and we're sitting there. And um, as is true today in youth ministry, it was true then. Idle time is the devil in youth ministry because if you don't give teenagers things to do, they're going to find something to do, right? I'm not hating on y'all. It was true when I was in high school as well. And so we, uh, we were finding something to do. I'll never forget my friend Lachey. She took her empty Coca-Cola glass bottle and she made an action figure out of it. She tied a napkin around it and made little arms and, and put a, a, a napkin in the, the, the top of it to make like hair. <laughs> and so she starts singing the song Kung Fu Fighting. She's like, everybody was Kung Fu fighting. Promise we were not in elementary school. We were seriously in high school. And of course, everybody else is like, oh, I want to do that. So everybody's making action figures out of their Coca-Cola bottles. And then, of course, a kung fu fight actually breaks out between two of our glass bottles. It was intense, but there was blood. <laughs> one of the, not actual blood. <laughs> that would be bad. Uh, no, one of the glasses broke, right? One of our kung fu heroes died. But, but it, was, it was crazy because when the glass bottle broke, it was like silence in the restaurant. And my friend Lachey, it was like she went pale. And she went to the corner and kind of like literally put herself in timeout because she was so ashamed and so sorry. And she went to our leader, Danny, and she was like, how do I say I'm sorry? How do I say I'm sorry? He's like, lo siento. So she goes to the owner. She's like, lo siento, lo siento, lo siento. And I don't remember what they said. Uh, probably under their breath, like stupid gringo, right? Uh, I don't know. But that story has always um, stayed with me because it, it showed me a, a value in their culture that is so different than our own. And as I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of that uh, a story for this reason. If you live someplace where you can throw out a bottle of Coke without ever thinking about it again, I realize you live in incredible privilege. And privilege isn't bad. I know that's a trigger word for a lot of people. Privilege is neutral. Nobody can, can choose where they were born, right? But it's what you do with that privilege that determines whether you are reflecting the character of Christ. Philippians 2, 7, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, it says about Jesus, though he was equal with God, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Why? So that he could live in solidarity with us. Can you imagine the inconveniences that Jesus must have experienced being fully divine and fully human, right? Having to do human stuff like go to the bathroom, <laughs> or eat his vegetables, or do his homework, or work, right? Like, these are things that he was like, I really don't have to do this <laughs> as divine, but, but he chose to do it. But what's amazing to me is verse 5, just above it, Philippians chapter 2, it says, you, Christian, must have the same attitude. In America, we have the privilege of convenience, but just because we have that privilege, it doesn't mean we have to use it. We have to accept it. Sometimes, like Christ, we need to choose solidarity even though we don't need to. 
There was an article in Life magazine in 1955 that kind of marked the beginning of throwaway culture in America. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the title of the article is Throwaway Living. The uh, subtitle says, Disposable Items Cut Down Household Chores. And the first line, it says, the items you see flying through the air in this picture would take 40 hours to clean, except that no housewife need bother. This was definitely the 50s. <laughs> it says, they are all meant to be thrown away after use. Right there is where we begin our love affair in America with convenience. Right? Originally, plastic was meant to boost our quality of life, making everything easier and cheaper, cheaper, which it does for us, for us, right? But the consequence is that 66 years later, in 2021, 66 years after that article was written, almost every piece of plastic that has ever been produced is still on this planet, polluting the earth and especially affecting the world's most vulnerable populations, Only 9% has ever been recycled, much of which we ship off to third world countries. 12% is incinerated, polluting the air, often affecting poor communities. 79% accumulating landfills and natural environment, which affects crops and fisheries for people who depend on those things for their livelihood. See, in America, we have the privilege of convenience that is connected to a culture of overconsumption. But just because we have the privilege, it doesn't mean we have to accept it. What I learned on my trip to Mexico is that there are other communities in the world that are much more humbly aware of their limits, not only of their limits, but of the earth's limits. They recognize the finitude of earth's resources, and they're doing what they have to do to preserve them. So this question I want to ask you tonight is, can I reuse? That's the practical question I want you to ask yourself, is can I Reuse. We're so used to just throwing Coke bottles away. But can I get into the habit of reusing? And I'm not going to spell that out for you. You could Google all kinds of crazy ways in 2021 to get creative about being more environmentally friendly with reuse of, of materials. But, but man, recognize that there are people in the world who reuse their resources because they have to. But our privilege as Christians is that we get to to live in solidarity, and to acknowledge the finitude of our earth and end our dependence upon God. My last point tonight is this, that bad managers do not collaborate with God. Bad managers do not collaborate with God, but good managers do. You remember the consequence of uh, that bad manager at the end of the story, right? getting chopped up and thrown out. But there's actually a positive example for us to look at at the beginning of the parable in verse 43. Jesus says, happy are the servants whom the master finds fulfilling their responsibilities when he comes. I assure you that the master will put them in charge of all of his possessions. I think it's hilarious that the reward for the good manager is more work, right? Like the master comes home and he's like, you've done an awesome job. Now you have more responsibility. I think we culturally, when we think about heaven or when we think about this new earth, new heaven that we're going to live in one day, we think it's going to be like, you know, 
margaritas, but non-alcoholic margaritas uh, in heaven by the pool, you know, eating Chick-fil-A, never getting fat, just like indulging. But what it tells us is that when we get to heaven, we got to work. And what it should say to us is that when we get to heaven, we're going to enjoy work because we'll be there with the master in his actual presence. See, the good manager will fit right into his role on the other side of eternity because he's been preparing for it his whole life. The whole time he was taking care of the house, he had already been collaborating with the master. As Christians, as managers of this earth, we are called to begin collaboration with the master, our creator today today. I was, uh, I was in the garden the other day, and I know that you're not going to believe me when I say this after preaching this sermon, but I'm actually not a very nature person, and um, the Kimballs will attest <laughs> because they are very naturey people. They're going hiking next week, and that's just something we are not going to do for a week at a time at the Godwin house. We don't like heat. We don't like bugs. We like air conditioning. We don't like pets. We don't have pets, right? Like, I'm being honest. This is my confession. This is who I am, right? Can't change it. Try it. But um, I am. I actually am trying. And so we, we moved into this new house, and the people who lived there before already had a garden. And we're like, well, that's awesome. And so I've been trying to garden this year. This is my first time. And I'm, I'm doing pretty good, y'all. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing all right. And I was really proud of myself because we had planted a lot of things. Um, And one of the things we planted were way too many zucchini plants. (laughs) We didn't realize. I had no idea how zucchini actually grew. So you should probably research that before you plant them. uh, But they they grow like crazy. They grow in vines. And so their leaves are humongous. And and so, uh, right, like, so so we're... (laughs) Uh, our, our, our garden is thriving, and it's been, just speaking to me, it's been amazing to see how creation works, like where we get our food from. It's amazing to see a pepper come from a plant you planted, you know, a few weeks ago. And so, um, anyway, it's been awesome, but I, 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 like I said, I am a new, new to this gardening thing. Half of, more than half of my zucchini plants died. And my pride and joy of the garden. And so I'm out there the other day, and I'm just kind of cleaning up all the dead leaves, and I'm making a pile, and I'm sad. I'm bummed because I'm like, dang, this thing was dope. This thing was full. And, and now it looks empty, and all these dead things are over here until I had this, this moment. It was like a, a, a silver lining revelation. I was like, oh, but you know what? I could put this stuff in my composting bin. I know y'all think I'm a tree hugger hippie, but again, this is my first year ever doing composting. And, um, and so, and, and that too has been speaking to me. It's been amazing to see how when you put dead stuff in a composting bin, how worms and microbes, they do all this stuff to break it down and it becomes what gardeners call black gold. It's the stuff that you go to the store and, and buy fertilizer out of plastic bags, right? It happens naturally. Who knew? I didn't, <laughs> Right? And so I've been amazed at not only the, 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 the process of growth, but even amazed at the process of, of composting and things kind of uh, creating new life. And I had this revelation as I was putting the dead limbs uh, into my composting bin. I, I had the re- this revelation. This is recycling. I was like, I thought we invented recycling. God invented recycling, right? Like, if you think about it, there's, 
everything in nature is recycled, right? There's the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle and the phosphorus. There's all of these cycles. I'm like, dang, wait a minute. Waste is a human invention. This thing that we do when we go to the store and we get what we need and we use half of it and we throw the rest of it out and then it just sits there in a landfill and does nothing, like that is not God's design. And when we buy into the culture of that all the time, we are not collaborating with his design. <laughs> we aren't collaborating with the creator. And as I was just doing this process of like putting the leaves in the composting bin, I was like, dang, I had this sense of, man, I am collaborating with the creator. And then I had this deeper revelation that, hey, not only did God invent recycling, but he embedded into all of creation the message of redemption. That dead stuff doesn't have to stay dead, right? That, that dead stuff can be raised to life again through Christ. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, it says, everything was created through Christ and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. We know Christ as Redeemer. That's common to us as it should. That's central to our gospel and our message, our faith. But sometimes we forget that Jesus is also the creator and also the sustainer, not only of us, but of all things. And when we care for creation, when we care for sustainability, we are participating. We are collaborating with Jesus to even amplify and tell the story of redemption that creation already does. I love how it says in Romans 1.20, all this stuff is already talking about God. People are without excuse because creation, all you got to do is look at the heavens, look at the earth to see that God is real. Creation is singing his praises, and when we care for it, we are collaborating with it. So I just want to, I want to close with this. We're about to go back into worship. There's two ways. I heard a pastor say this recently. There's two ways that you can think about the reality of God. Either you, you, it'll make you respond in this way. That because God exists, therefore, nothing else matters. And I think that's the, the testimony, unfortunately, of many, that many Christians are leaving behind in this world. God exists, but all that other stuff, it doesn't matter. That's one way to think. But another way to respond is this, that God exists, therefore, everything matters. And when I think about the Jesus of Colossians chapter 1, which says he's the creator and the sustainer of all things, holding all things together, I kind of have to believe that because of Jesus, everything matters. And that's a message that's both challenging and encouraging. Challenging because it's inconvenient to care about everything. <laughs> it's inconvenient to care about not just this stuff, but like justice and my neighbor who isn't doing great, and so now I have to pray for them or bake them a lasagna. It's inconvenient to care about everything. But it's so reassuring. You want to know why? Because it means that if everything matters, then so do you. And so does all this stuff in your life. I love that song that says, right, if he clothes the lilies, how much more will he clothe you? If he feeds the sparrow, how much more will he love you? That's the message we should be sharing with the world, that we care about everything, 
so that they know that God cares about them. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to go back into worship, but, and just remind you that if you do need prayer, if there's something going on in your life, we will have prayer down here at the end after worship, but God, I pray that you would help us, help us to care. First, God, help us to just be amazed at your creation and how it sings your praises and help us to collaborate with you in sustaining and caring for it. Help us to, to, to not just see you and your beauty in creation, God, but to see you lifted up through it and in it. Lord, we pray tonight that our witness in the church would be one that says, because he cares, I care. Because he cares, I care. Help us to be good managers. Help us Lord, and I pray that as we worship tonight, as we collaborate with the rest of creation, already praising you in what they do. God, if there's anyone here tonight who needs to be convinced that you care for them, would you do it now? In Jesus' name, amen.